What are we thinking about today? Today we are thinking about a really pivotal, difficult, awkward topic. The end does not justify the means. Another way of phrasing it is that there are some things that you simply cannot do. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the motive, you've got a really good motive that you've mapped it all out in your head and the seminary would be just so much better if we didn't have the rector. And therefore, uh, how you get to the end, you know, there's so many different ways you can change a situation. Um, seriously though, um, how do you get to the end? You've got a good end you have to also have a good way of getting there, a good means to get there. And that, in short, is what we're going to be thinking about uh, in a number of different ways in this class. And in some ways, I'm going to repeat myself saying the same thing multiple different ways uh, as the catechism does. So this is about the end and the means. We're going to note, as the catechism does, catechism gets rather technical in how it refers to this. It says there are three sources of morality. What does it mean by that? You've got something you're doing, you're trying to figure out, is this thing moral or immoral? Three sources that you draw on in your analysis. The object, the end, and the circumstances. The object, more generally speaking, colloquially speaking, we would say the means. And these can be, we're going to learn a technical word, intrinsically evil. The end, another way we can refer more specifically is the intention. Now let's think about how we get somewhere. So you've got some end that you are aiming towards. How do you get there? Well, you get there via the means. You've got some way to get there. I'm now going to use a beautiful bit of artwork. You may already have guessed by now, art was not my best subject in high school. Um, this is an eye. Any of you see these diagrams of an eye in physics class? Um, so this is an eye. It is looking and evaluating. It's looking at the means. It's looking also at the end. You are, in your mind's eye, choosing the end that you want to get to, but you're also choosing how you're going to get there. So this is the will, this mind's eye. You are choosing both of them. You don't only choose the end. You don't only choose the outcome. So because you choose, you will the way to get there as well. The way to get there, the means, is also morally relevant. So when we talk about moral evil, what we mean by that is willing evil. There's some evil and I choose it. I set my will upon it. And if I set it, my will upon it in the means, then I'm willing evil. If I set my will upon it in the end, I am willing evil. But one might be good and one might be evil. So I could have a good end and an evil means. I could have an evil means but a good end. Sorry, is that just saying the same thing again? I could have um, a, good, a good means and an evil end or a good end and an evil means. 
there's a principle we're going to need to hold on to here. One defect and the whole is defective. So if one bit of this is evil, then the whole becomes evil. Yeah. Can you give us an example of the circumstances being evil? I'm going to come on to examples as we go through, but um, so a man having sex with his wife good means, good end, doing it in the middle of the park where everyone's watching, the circumstances are relevant. Um, sorry, that was crude but clear, yes. <laughs> Poison. Now let's imagine the example of eating a meal. When you have your meal, you get your meat, you get your potatoes, you get your vegetables, you eat each of them. If the meat and the potatoes are utterly fine and only the vegetables poisoned, everything else is fine, it's only the vegetable that's poisoned, are you going to die? Yeah, because you eat the whole. If one bit is poisoned, the whole is poisoned. That's an analogy where, because you, in a sense, you eat the whole, you will the whole, and you will all the bits within it. If one of those parts, one of those sources is evil, the whole becomes evil. That, in summary, is what we're going to look at today. Okay, let's turn to the lecture notes. Page one here, um, I've rephrased the same thing in three different ways that I've called key notion one, two, and three. It's really the same thing, but just rephrased. So key notion one, I say at the top of the page, in bold, there are some things which may never be done. Now that doesn't mean that all evil acts may never be done. But there are some that in any circumstance, in any intention, are always going to be what we call intrinsically evil. Such acts are called intrinsically evil. Brother Adam, can you read the quote there from Veritas's Splendor? In teaching the existence of intrinsically evil acts, the Church accepts the teaching of sacred scripture. And as example of such acts, Veritas's Splendor cites scripture. Josh? Do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, not be deceived, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sexual perverts, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God? So there's a list there. It's not a comprehensive list of things, but it's a list of things. St. Paul's not saying, well, if they're drunkards, but they had a good excuse, then it's not being drunk. Well, no, he's saying these are wrong things to do. Any circumstance, still wrong. Now, your guilt might be diminished. If you got drunk because you just broke up with your girlfriend, that's understandable, forgivable, excusable. You're less guilty for it than just for no particular reason, just choosing to go and get blottoed because you just want to go. <laughs> yeah, okay, we'll, we'll have a grammatical lexicon of English words uh, later. Okay, that's the basic point. Key notion two, you may not do evil so that good may result from it. This is directly quoting from the Catechism. Um, 
Adam, can you read the line there from Veritatis Splendor? It is... It is never lawful, even for the greatest of reasons, to do evil that good may come of it. And then Veritatis Splendor quotes the key passage in this regard, Romans 3.8, where St. Paul says, There are those who say, why not do evil that good may come? Their condemnation is just. So St. Paul saying there are people out there that say, well, we want good, let's just do evil to get there. Um, so this is addressed in scripture, firmly condemned. Um, down the centuries, the church has had utter conviction about this. This is one of the things that separates us from the pagans. Um, mid 20th century onwards, there are an awful lot of people running around in the church saying, well, maybe, uh, maybe not. Um, situation ethics, as it was called, it always depends on the context, always depends on the situation. Sometimes that thing's wrong, sometimes maybe not. Um, so 1990s, John Paul II, Saint John Paul II, John Paul the Great, addresses a whole bunch of moral controversies, moral errors of the time. And he comes out with his encyclical Veritatis Splendor. And he says, uh, among other things, there are these acts, intrinsically evil acts, things that may simply never be done. And the Catechism came out at the same time, um, is reiterating those same points. Okay, rephrasing it, I say key notion three, the end does not justify the means. So this is kind of saying the same thing, but in less technical language. I note this principle is a pivotal difference between Catholic ethics and model, modern secular ethics. So utilitarian ethics, pivotally with John Stuart Mill, says that one should do whatever has the best consequences. I, he says that the end does justify the means. I.e. that the means has no moral uh, significance apart from the end. Have you all heard of this? Consequentialism, utilitarianism, whatever brings about the greatest happiness. That's the only criteria. Um, if I commit adultery, but the consequences, no one gets hurt. She never knows. Um, I'm happy, the woman I have adultery with is happy, the wife never knows, she's happy, everyone's happy. Um, the end justifies the means, that there is no problem. Means don't exist in utilitarian ethics. All that matters is the end. And that fails, uh, we won't look at it in detail, but that fails on all kinds of levels as a theory, principally because you can't measure and predict the outcome of your actions. So there are all kinds of ripple-on effects in your actions that you can't know in advance, you can't predict. And so if your entire system is based on nothing but predicting the outcome, is based on something that you just don't know. Whereas in our Catholic analysis, we do say the outcome is relevant. It is part of our analysis, but we say there are other things that are also very crucial. Okay, back to my page here, I say, the means. I'm just coming back to that phrase. So for Catholics to say that the end does not justify the means implies that the means can be evaluated apart from the end. Now I'm gonna unpack that in a couple pages, but that's a, just an important point to note right here. We're saying even if there isn't an end, we can, even without an end, make a moral judgment about certain means. So some means are evil, some means are good, some means are neutral, but that we can make a judgment about them. Okay, two examples here. Jake, can you, who here remembers the Jack Bauer, the TV series 24? This was quite a while ago. Okay, the Marines maybe had a, more of a Can you read that sure. summary? So contemporary example, Jack Bauer, Chappelle. A living U.S. government agent within the hour, or else he will explode atomic bombs. The government needs to buy needs time needs to buy time to track the terrorists. 
The U.S. President thus commands Hero Jack Bauer to kill Chappelle. Bauer kills Chappelle. Uh, the government eventually tracks down the terrorists before explosions occur. Did the end justify the means? So one of our good guys, Chappelle, he kills just to buy some time and satisfy the terrorists while we track down the terrorist. And, you know, on the TV show, it's all great heartache that, you know, oh, should I do it, should I do it, bang. Um, and this is presented, you know, that and parallel scenarios. Um, you'll say, have you all heard the phrase, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs? Yeah, as if that's a profound moral statement. Um, <laughs> I can remember one um, when I was a hospital chaplain years ago, the, the Anglican hospital chaplain that I worked with, who was in the hospital system, my superior, um, I can remember she would say, well, sometimes doing the right thing means doing the wrong thing. <laughs> and again, this is supposed to be very profound. Um, <laughs> that you think it's all black and white. There you are with your white collar. Um, <laughs> it's not that simple. It's not that simple. Well, we're saying, yes, sometimes these things are complicated, but that doesn't mean actually there isn't some clear black and white here about a great many things. Not everything is black and white. There's also green, um, but some things are black and white. Okay, the classical example I put there at the bottom of the page. Um, Michael, can you read this for us? A woman's husband is held captive by a king, and the king will kill the man unless the wife sleeps with the king. A good end, saving the husband. A bad means, sleeping with a man who is not her husband. Does the end justify the means? So St. Thomas and the tradition say, no, the end does not justify the means. The woman cannot agree to sleep with the king, even though she loves her husband. This modern heresy within the church called proportionalism says yes. So when I was in seminary, um, we had two professors teaching us. Both were proportionalists to different degrees. Um, they were teaching us all this stuff. And then John Paul II condemns what they're teaching. And they say, ah, um, he doesn't understand. You know, you know he's Polish. Um, that, was a, that, was a, that was a big line back then. You know, he's Polish. These things are very subtle. They don't get these subtleties, these Polish people. Um, so my professor, I remember him in class um, picking on me because I was defending the church's position and saying, well, if she loves her husband, of course she's going to sleep with the king. How could she love her husband and not do that? Yeah. Isn't it that what the martyrs do? And this is one of the points, um, Spayman's article points. This is the pivotal example. John Paul II in Veritas Splendor comes back to the example of the martyrs. We've had this scenario time and time again. The martyrs died because there are some things we simply cannot do. Even if my life depends on it, even if someone else's life depends on it. Ultimately, there's someone else who has charge of everything. And I have to just sometimes do the right thing and trust the outcome to him. And ultimately, the outcome is beyond this world. And our being faithful to the Lord, our being faithful to truth, our being faithful to goodness, we do our part and we leave the rest to him. Okay, page one, we've kind of summarized briefly what we're talking about. We kind of all know what we're talking about, yes? Okay, over the page, page two. Now we're going to break this down a little more technically. So, the moral evaluation of human acts. This is what we're doing now. We've got a human action. How do we look at the bits that make it up and evaluate it? To make a judgment, is it evil, is it good? Hunter, can you read that quotation? So this is a block from the Catechism. The morality of human acts depends on. 
The morality of human acts depends on the object chosen, the end in view or the intention, and the circumstances of the action. The object, the intention, and the circumstances make up the sources or constitutive elements of the morality of human acts. Okay, so that's quite technical and precise what the catechism is saying, but that what we're looking at here does require specific analysis to be making a judgment. Um, okay, so I say here, for an act to be good, all three aspects must be good. Um, for an act to be evil, only one aspect needs to be evil. That one flaw corrupts the integrity of the whole act. So to come back to my analogy, if a part of your meal is poisoned, you eat all the parts, you eat the whole, you are poisoned. So we were just in ethics class, and we were talking about involuntary and non-voluntary action. Yeah. And I was thinking, which one of those is sinful? Because like, some of them, I guess, like, there could be evil in it. Sin is only sin if the will is involved. If an act is involuntary, the will can't be involved. Does that clarify that? So in a sense, that should be really clear. Sometimes the will should have been involved and it's your fault it wasn't. That actually you should have thought about what you did and you just couldn't be bothered to think. So it's your fault it was involuntary. And so kind of at a step back is kind of voluntarily involuntary. Yeah? Because you've chosen not to get involved, and you should have. So generally speaking, in all, in a lot of our sins of omission are this nature. I don't make the effort to find out whether my brother down the corridor needs some help right now. I don't make the effort to see if the fact he's looking a bit down this week, if there's something there I should be asking him about. It's a sin of omission but I've chosen not to get involved. And therefore, at a, another level, it is voluntary. But there are other things that are simply involuntary, and therefore the will doesn't get involved, and there is no moral act, and so this whole analysis doesn't even begin to take place. So somebody puts a drug in your drink in the pub because they think it'll be funny, um, and you then do something terrible under the influence, you were non-voluntary in what you were doing. They were voluntary, but you weren't. So your action did not even have a moral quality, good or evil. Okay. Back to the pages here. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas' axiom. Evil results from a single defect, but good from the complete cause. So when it is good, it's the whole that's good, it's the cause. But when there's even a single defect, there is evil. Say, so, i.e., for an act to be good, it must have a good object and have a good end and must also be good in the context of its circumstances. If any element in the act is bad, then the whole action becomes morally vitiated. Isn't that a nice word, vitiated? Yeah. And if you say it with a British accent, it sounds even better. Yeah. Okay. There are some words that you read the moral manuals and they use these words because they have a kind of precision about them. You don't use them in other contexts, and that's kind of why I'm using it here. Ruined, corrupted, perverted. So what would be an example? Um, so here I, quoting from the Catechism, examples in the Catechism. Uh, Francisco, can you read that block for us? Yes, I can. A good intention, for example, that of helping one's neighbor, does not make behavior that is intrinsically disordered, such as lying, call me good or just. The end does not justify the means. Thus, the condemnation of an innocent person cannot be justified as a legitimate means 
of saving the nation. On the other hand, an added bad intention, such as vainglory, makes an act evil that, in and of itself, can be good, such as almsgiving. Does that help? There's a couple of examples to clarify. Yeah. So, an undercover cop is lying about who he is for a good end. Is that wrong to do? That's. We're going to come on to lying in more detail later in the course. We go through the commandments. One of those is lying. Um, I don't want us to get, and because this always happens at this moment in the course, um, <laughs> we could have a, a half-hour distraction on lying and never get. So, if we can just for a moment assume what's being stated here that lying is an intrinsically evil act, which is interesting. It's not the claim lying is usually wrong or lying can be wrong. But at this place, it doesn't define a lie. So we're going to have to define what is lying later in the course. But it's very difficult, morally speaking, for somebody to be a spy. So where there's lots of details in that, that you can lots of moments say, oh, well, he can figure out what to say there, which isn't quite a lie and isn't quite the truth. To do that consistently, very difficult to see how someone could do that and not become morally corrupt. Um, okay, next section there. I asked the question, which I've already answered in a sense earlier, why? Why does one evil part vitiate the whole? Say, an act is only a human act in as much as it emanates from the will enlightened by reason. Contrasting, as we did last lecture, an act of a human, for example, falling over, versus a human act, choosing to fall over. An act is only moral when willed, i.e. is a human act. So it's this engagement of the will that makes an act human. I say an act is morally evil in as much as the will wills evil. That the will, as I sketched out here, the will bears not only on the end, but also the means to the end. And thus both are sources of the morality of the act. So if the will chooses an evil object, then the will chooses evil, even if it's intending a good end. Jake, can you read that next quote from the Catechism, the object of the choice? Vitiate. There are some concrete acts, such as fornication, that is always wrong to choose because choosing them entails a disorder of the will that is immoral evil. Slightly different thing, my last line on that page, I say, by doing evil, you become an evildoer. The action reflexively affects your character. I'm going to look at virtue later, um, but basically what you do makes you the person you are. And if you're doing evil, it changes you. You become an evildoer. So it's not just the specific act that's problematic. What happens to you, that is also problematic. Okay, page three. Now, as I was thinking about this this morning, asking myself the question, is this too technical to be going through with you? On one level, yes, this is technical, but you need to have, even at this level college course, a glimpse that there's a technical analysis behind what the church is saying here. When we do moral theology properly in a couple of years, you'll do this much more slowly and in detail. But we're going to now define each of these parts, the object, the end, and the circumstances. So, page 3a, the object. What is the object? Well, I say it's the means to the end, generally speaking. It's also referred to as the proximate end to the final end. 
more precise definition, I ask? See, definitions are typically a matter of philosophy rather than doctrine. That said, the church sometimes condemns certain definitions as inadequate and sometimes praises some definitions as apt. So the example um, I give in the footnotes there, transubstantiation. Are you all aware transubstantiation is not the doctrine of the church? The doctrine is the real presence. Transubstantiation is a philosophical language that explains that and makes it coherent. And the Council of Trent says that the language of transubstantiation is apt for describing what the church believes. And the reason the church makes that, that sound, why am I being that particular? Because you don't have to hold to Aristotelian categories of substance in order to believe in the real presence. So the church is saying that language is thoroughly apt, but you don't need to be an Aristotelian to accept the doctrine of the real presence. Something similar here. What precisely, philosophically, is going to define the object? Um, so a definition articulated by William May, who is one of the was one of the pivotal defenders of the church's teaching in the era after um, Humana Vitae came out. He and many other like-minded defenders of the existence of what are called intrinsically evil acts, he defines the object as, the object is a material event specified by a good, grasped and willed by the agent as a means. Now what on earth does that mean? I'll give some examples here. So, a good object would be the marriage act. Sexual intercourse is the material event with your spouse, a good. A bad object would be adultery. Sexual intercourse, material event, no, same material event, but with someone else's spouse. So that clarification makes it a different action, different object. Another bad object, rape. Sexual intercourse, again, same material event, against the will of another. That clarifying good makes it a different object. The bad object of theft, taking another's property, material event, against the reasonable will of the owner. Now let's just pause there with that example, theft, taking the property of another. So, um, Adam has a heart attack right here in class, and I grab the rector's car keys, drive him in the rector's car to the hospital. I have taken the rector's car, I have taken the rector's property, but not against the reasonable will of the owner. Yeah, I didn't have time to stop and ask the rector permission, but if the rector was being reasonable, he would have let me take his car. Now, if the rector said, actually, my car's rather nice. I don't want you, he's got, he's dripping blood. I don't want him in my car. That would not be reasonable. Um, so theft, in the classic definition, the reasonable will of the owner. If a reasonable owner would permit it, then taking it is not theft. And that really only kicks in as a criteria in extreme examples like the one I just gave. Okay, back to my list here. A bad object, murder, as one example. Killing someone, the material event, in jealousy. A good object, self-defense, as an example. Killing someone, the same material event, but in self-defense. So just killing someone isn't enough of a description to have an object of the act. Last example on the list, bad object, murder, again, phrasing it as killing someone, material event, without due cause. So just killing someone, that's the material event, but to have a moral analysis, 
to have an object you can describe morally, you need more specification. So John Paul II in Veritas of Splendor taught that there are, uh, Eric, can you read that quote from Veritas of Splendor? Acts which in the church moral tradition have been termed intrinsically evil. They are such always and per se, in other words, an account of their very object, and quite apart from the ultimate intentions of what acting in the circumstances. And he also says that the primary source of the morality of the act is the object. Primary in what sense? Well, you do it first before you get to the end. Primary in another sense in that we can kind of create lists of objects, of things we can envisage in the abstract before having particular uh, intentions that we're attaching to them. That's all I'm going to say about the object. Yeah? Self-defense. I'm, I'm thinking about the martyrs, right? Yeah. What well, didn't they act in self-defense? Right? Instead of like burning them, I'm just gonna choke them to death with my own bare hands. You mean choke the person who was gonna burn you to death? No, 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 no. I'm being the bad guy in this. I'm gonna kill the martyr. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Why didn't he act in self-defense? Why didn't the martyr defend himself? Mm -hmm. If the martyr could have defended himself, generally speaking, he should have. Okay. Um, and there'd be many examples where, where they do. Um, usually martyrs are martyred because they're a minority, a vulnerable minority, as well as being attacked. Um, yeah, so I had a question with, um, you know, kind of like in today, you know, as you know, priest, a symbol uh, of the church, and right now there's this very, some people are very extreme and sometimes would want to, let's say, attack you or whatnot if you're wearing uh, your clerical shirt or whatnot. Um, and, you know, you just try to defend yourself. You don't want to, like, mess the person up too bad, but at the same time not get hurt. <laughs> but some people see that as you're not being Christ-like, so kind of like just the, what could be like the best circumstances in that? Yeah, I was thinking that as I was commenting on that. There would be many occasions when um, somehow it would be a better witness to love to allow myself to be taken prisoner rather than kill people who are trying to take me prisoner. Um, many occasions when someone spits in my face and on one level I would be morally justified in a kind of self-defense back but the, the better option is to just take it um, as a priest in a parish that's a dilemma you'll get a lot so there will be occasions when somebody gossips about you, lies about you, publicly abuses you, and you have to decide, do I accept that because it's just about me? Or actually, do I somehow need to defend the priesthood and therefore the church by somehow countering and engaging and exposing that? And that's never an easy call to make. And because we can be selfish in our attachment to our reputation, we need to have a lot of self-honesty there. Okay, good questions. I'm going to move on. Um, so that is trying to describe the object. It is technical. We will do that more when we do a proper course on this in a couple of years. But that's the beginning of an answer. Josh, did you have a question? No. Okay. Okay, page four, the end. This is a, a little simpler. So say the end is the cause of the whole action. You know, why does it happen at all? Well, because of the end, where you're trying to get to. So the end is therefore referred to as the cause of the goodness of a good act. Uh, that whole proceeds from the good end. 
Then I give the example, giving to the poor as an object is a good act, but if done for vanity, the end is evil and the whole act is thus evil. Whereas if done for charity, the end is good and the whole act is good. This is a bit simpler than the technical definition of objects, but you see how the end has to be good for the act to be good. Just having a really good object doesn't make the act good. Form and matter, um, those of you who love your philosophy, I'm going to throw in a bit of philosophy here as an analogy. The relationship between end and object can be compared to form and matter. That the form informs the matter and causes an act. However, matter must be proportioned to its form, or else the form cannot inform it. That not all matter is suitable for proportioned to a particular form. So here's a chair. You cannot make a chair, the form of a chair, with the matter of jello. Yeah, you can only kind of put the form of a chair into matter that is suitable. Some objects, some means, are just not capable of being proportioned to a good end. Moving on, page five, the circumstances. Um, so, C, circumstances. The Catechism describes the relevance of circumstances in this way. John Paul, can you read that quote from the Catechism? The circumstances, including the consequences, are secondary elements of the moral act. They contribute to increasing or diminishing the moral goodness or evil of human acts. For example, the amount of that. They can also diminish or increase the agent's responsibility, such as acting out of the fear of death. Circumstances of themselves cannot change the moral quality of acts themselves. They can make neither good nor right an action that is in itself evil. Question, yeah. So, basically how a homeless person or let's say a father that has a family and they become homeless, uh, you know, the only way that he can at least try to get some food or something to... Uh, his family is by stealing. So, but the you know the act is evil because he's stealing against the will of another. But he is doing it for the good end of helping you know other family members. So. Okay. Now there was a magic word that you didn't repeat from the definition of theft from earlier. Did anyone spot it? Yeah. Reasonable. Reasonable. So it's the reasonable will of the owner that may not be opposed not the will of the owner. So if the rich man in his castle has a poor man starving to death as his gate and just leaves him there, the rich man in the castle is not being reasonable. And if the poor man at the gate takes food, it is not an act of theft. St. Thomas says, in such circumstances, all things become common in their ownership which I know to many in America sounds like the church has become communist. <laughs> um, but actually, you know, this is St. Thomas, the medieval uh, believer in the monarchy, believer in the structure of society and everything. But this is a very ancient notion that ownership is not an absolute thing. It's a relative thing. Private ownership is very real, very important, but it's not an absolute reality. And there are many extreme circumstances of someone starving to death and needing to protect their family and such, where it ceases to be theft. Now, if the only way he can do that is continual thieving, is that really the only way he can do that? Is there not somehow another solution as a long-term solution? There are, in many cultures, groups of society, ethnic groups, that are so marginalized 
that they are not allowed to get real jobs, they are not allowed to live in real houses, and they are thus relegated to a perpetual state of thieving that isn't morally thieving as their only way of surviving. Um, gypsies in Europe, in many countries of Europe, have been kind of over many centuries rendered into that category forced into a pattern of life of a habitual theft where morally is it still theft? Yeah? In Cuba we have a saying that there's there's only one thief everybody else trying to get their stuff back it's meaning that we all steal in Cuba Did they have that saying before communism? Uh, no, not really Because a communist government, particularly a corrupt communist government, you distort the whole notion of what ownership means. Oh well, yeah, like, like um, we have like a, we have a, a ration book, right? That we can yeah, certain yeah. Food, but never lasts for anybody. So whoever's selling me the eggs, I give them an extra two pesos to give me three mm. other eggs. Mm. That's technically stealing from the government. Mm. But he gave me the eggs. The person behind me sees it. He's gonna do the same thing, mm -hmm. but the government has made it so that the only way we can feed our children is by stealing from the government. And that's where our whole system is broken down, mm -hmm. um, and the categories of theft and legal ownership have been corrupted by the system itself. But that's beyond the course of today's lecture. Um, okay. Briefly, I note a distinction there. This is back to circumstances. Say so some circumstances are circumstances of the agent, of the person acting, including his intention. Say so such circumstances do not alter the evil present in an object that is intrinsically evil. It's going to remain intrinsically evil. So some authors refer to these as circumstances one as opposed to circumstances two. So such circumstances might, for example, affect a person's degree of guilt without changing the act per se from evil to good or good to evil. So I do something in a fit of rage. That is a circumstance of the agent. My fit of rage doesn't make what I'm doing right, but it just hinders my ability to judge properly, I'm less responsible for what I'm doing. Though sometimes, if I habitually get in fits of rage, I need to, I have a duty to know I need to control myself more. So some of these examples aren't clear-cut, but these things, a circumstance of the agent can affect my degree of guilt without making the act good. Two, other circumstances aren't circumstances of the agent, the person acting, they're circumstances of the thing being done, the object. I say only circumstances of the object of the act can enter into the object itself and change it into another object, another act. I, if such a circumstance is not present, or is present, then the object itself of the act is altered. So we've referred to theft a few times already. Those are descriptions of the act itself, specifications of the act, of the reasonable will of the owner. That changes, and therefore the object is no longer an object of theft or is still an object of theft. You with me? The basic point, not all circumstances are the same. Some circumstances are relevant in different ways. Can we get an example? The theft one? So, the theft one, um, I steal the rector's car, or, or rather I take the rector's car, 
which is taking another's property. But if I do it, and I know generally speaking, if he knew the situation I'm in needing to use a car in an emergency, he'd let me do it, or a reasonable person would let me do it, then it's not theft. I've not asked him, I've not been able to ask him, but I know a reasonable person would allow me in this emergency to use their car. Therefore, it's not theft. That's the object itself being described. Whereas, I take the rector's car keys because it's a nicer car than mine uh, and I'm meeting someone who I kind of want to impress and I think turning up in a nice black sleek car is going to look better than that muddy brown thing I've got to drive. Um, that's not the reasonable will of the owner, wouldn't. I've, I've no claim to say, well, a reasonable owner would, no, a reasonable owner would say, you chose to buy that muddy brown car, uh, you can drive it. If you hadn't spent as much on truck and ice cream, you could have a nicer car. Yeah. Okay. Page six, the example of martyrdom. So if you read the article by Spayman, he dwells on this. In his encyclical Veritatis Splendor, John Paul II, after lots of detailed analysis, he comes back to this. How do we as Christians know how to behave? What have our heroes of the past done? The martyrs in particular, what did they do? So, the example of martyrdom. John Paul II produced what is probably the ultimate counter-analysis to those who claim that sometimes a Christian may do wrong to achieve a good end, namely martyrdom. Um, before proceeding, sorry, martyrdom, the good end, saving your life, what would be the bad means? Just so we're all clear here. Denying, denying Christ. Christ, yeah. Or it might be denying how Christ would have you live. So in the early church, many of the virgin martyrs of ancient Rome, they refused to yield their virginity to some powerful Roman Lord. Um, their faithfulness to the way of life that Christ called them to led them to martyrdom. So either explicitly for the name of Christ or explicitly for refusing to burn the grains of incense to the pagan God, or not doing something in how you're living that you know Christ requires of you. That's being a martyr. And the question raised is, well, it's a good thing to save your life. It's a very important thing to save your life. People may be depending on you. Your family may be depending on you. Therefore, just burn the grains of incense and you can continue to have a job and support your family. Burn the grains of incense and you can help the church continue to live. The church needs to go on. If you die, the church will die out and people will not hear about Jesus Christ. Just burn the grains of incense and the church can go on. Yeah, these are powerful issues. Okay, what do I say here? Back to my notes. If those who dissent from the Catholic tradition are correct, then there would be grounds for denying Christ and saving yourself from martyrdom, i.e. denying Christ would not be an intrinsically evil act. But the tradition maintains that denying Christ is sinful. So let's read through these paragraphs. Michael, can you read the first one there? Martyrdom accepted as an affirmation of the inviolability of the moral order slender witness both to the holiness of God's law and to the inviolability of the personal dignity of man, created in God's image and likeness. This dignity may never be disparaged or called into question, even with good intentions, whatever the difficulties involved. Jesus warns us most sternly, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Brother Adam? 
Ingram rejects as false and illusory whatever human meaning one might claim to attribute, even in exceptional, exceptional conditions, to an act morally evil in itself. Indeed, it even more clearly unmasks the true face of such an act. It is a violation of man's humanity, and the one perpetrating it, even before the one enduring it. Hence, martyrdom is also the exaltation of a person's perfect humanity and of true life. So we should be prepared to die rather than do evil. And Josh, can you read that last paragraph? In this witness to the absoluteness of the moral good, Christians are not alone. They are supported by the moral sense present in peoples and by the great religious and sapiential traditions of East and West in which the interior and mysterious workings of God's spirit are not absent. The words of the Latin poet, Juvenal, apply to all. Consider it the greatest of crimes to prefer survival to honor, and out of love of physical life to lose the very reason for living. The voice of conscience has always clearly recalled that there are truths and moral values for which one must be prepared to give up one's life. I notice a historical note, the most common theory that defends doing evil for the sake of a good end is called proportionalism in recent years in the church. So it was dominant in the seminaries right through to the 1990s and caused much confusion in the church. It was condemned by Pope St. John Paul II in Veritas of Splendor in 1993. And I see there are still many in the church who erroneously hold to various forms of diluted forms of proportionalism. Has the church officially condemned Portugal? So the encyclical Veritatis Splendor, yes, by name. The difficult... Like a uh, dogmatic declaration. We haven't had a list of canons and anathemas produced by the church for centuries. Well, not centuries. For, for it's, it's not been the post-conciliar mode of how to engage. So Veritatis Splendor does not anathematize in the formal dogmatic sense. But the entire purpose of that encyclical was to name, describe, um, and condemn the era of proportionalism. Now proportion, uh, sorry. Couldn't like a pope say in like times past when in the corruption of the church come out with the, a pope who would come out with an encyclical that condemned the truth of the church Uh, a curious fact in that regard is many, well, all the morally corrupt popes we can look to in history, and there were a good number, not one of them ever taught heresy. They lived corruptly, they never taught that one may live corruptly. And that is kind of the clearest example of the infallibility of the church playing out that even these bad popes, who we don't need to deny were bad, still the Holy Spirit prevented them teaching error. And this is what the doctrine of infallibility claims, that the church will never be led into error. We can listen to the solemn definitions of the church and know that they are free from error. We don't have the guarantee that the popes will be good or be wise um, or make good practical judgments. So, you know, the recent popes um, permitted Cardinal McCarrick to do whatever, promoted Cardinal McCarrick, um, were incompetent in dealing with the likes of Cardinal McCarrick. Uh, we have no guarantee that things like that won't happen. Um, but none of them taught that the stuff McCarrick did was permissible. And in fact, we're condemning it, and McCarrick would be an example of those who were, by various sleights of hand, publicly looking like he was doing the right stuff, but living a very different life. Um, and that's still going on in big parts of the church now. Uh, 
whatever diocese you end up in, you have to be ready to not have your brothers in the priesthood walking the walk with you. Um, it's going to be much easier for you in your generation than it was in mine that those situations are becoming less and less common. And in a sense, the lines are clearer and clearer. Um, but you can't just go with the crowd. Martyrdom, because we've got a slight distraction there. Um, martyrdom. Is it clear how martyrdom becomes the definitive example here? A difficult example, but definitive. Even to save your own life, which is a good end. Even to continue to live to support those who depend on you, you may not do evil. And St. Thomas More, uh, great English saint. Uh, he had a family. He had a family depending on him. He was very slow to rush to an act that he knew would immediately lead to his execution. Um, there was nothing impetuous in his refusing to do evil, refusing to make the declaration that the king wanted him to make. Um, but he knew he could not do evil, even to save his life, even to continue to support his family. Those of you who've read Spayman's article, which dwells on this, what does he add, reflect on in this regard? In terms of the martyrs? In general? Anything to throw in? Well, I really like what, what he said when other martyrs. Um, they obeyed God and left the church future to his care. And that's pretty much him rephrasing what he said uh, earlier. Like, like, remember that God is the Lord of, of history and time. So I really, really like that. Like, it was better, uh, it's better to suffer matter than the outcome of doing whatever you want me to do. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a bigger word, uh, evil. Yeah. Not, yeah. To do what you want me to do. Yeah. What were you going to? Just thought it was cool when he, he's talking about the martyrs. He said, you know, in their head, they didn't, there wasn't a choice between choosing Christ and, and not choosing him. There was, for them, there was no alternative option. They were so for Christ that there is no alternative. Yeah. What about what he says about the pagans faced with parallel scenarios? In a sense, because John Paul II also notes that even those outside of the church are able to see the same truth, that there are some things you simply cannot do. The, the line he quotes, the rationale he quotes there, did that strike you? And when he's talking about the consequentialism and totalitarianism? Yeah, well, go on. Um, well, he says that, that everything expected to, to harm more good than bad consequences is that it becomes, like to them, it becomes something that is morally good. So it cannot be evil, and, and he, he completely. And he talks to the to the feeling of shame that, according to them, shame is something that needs to be disregarded. Because as long as you have the outcome is good, it doesn't matter what you do. And he's saying this this sense of shame that even the ancients before Christ realized tells us something. Um, he says, "How does he?" The, the pagan he quotes um, everything becomes unbearable once a person abandons his nature and does what is not in accordance with it that there are certain things I recognize within myself I'm violating myself if I do this I can't I can't do this Life becomes 
unlivable. The reason to live is gone if I save my life in this way. Now he connects shame, personal integrity, worship God and responsibility. He says, your life is to be a living act of worship of the Lord. How you live is to worship the Lord by living a good life. And so if you do something bad to save your life, you're contradicting the reason you're existing. To live a good life, to worship the Lord, to be faithful to what the Lord asks, these all go together. And that sense of shame in doing what's contrary to the will of God is the recognition that I'm not doing that. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit of, uh, he talks about uh, uncon unconditional obedience, like, like if, even if we do not, if we do not do what is, what he has forbidden, then we're not responsible for the results of this omission. Can you talk a little bit about that? Just uh, hard for me to understand. So the limits of responsibility. If I know this is forbidden, then I just have to do the right thing. And what's going to be the consequences I leave to God? I can worry about consequences, but if I just know I can't do this thing, then the consequences of me being faithful, I have to leave to the Lord. One example, leaving it to the Lord, as we've already said, the church will die out if I do not survive. Well, actually God has a plan that's bigger than you. And when we look to history, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Your own family, the own people depending on you, God somehow has a plan for them. And the ultimate good for them isn't just in this world and are entrusting them too to a better outcome includes ultimately that better outcome. We do the right thing, the ultimate responsibility is in God's hands. I really love what he said then. Like the Church of Christ is the Church of the Martyrs. Yeah. The witnesses are not the Church of the Scholars. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, summing up. The end and the means. The end does not justify the means. For an act to be good, the whole has to be good. It has to have a good end, good intention, but also a good means, object to get there, and in its context, its circumstances, to be good as well. If one of those parts, one of those sources is evil, then the whole becomes evil because your will engages and chooses the whole. Um, so when things are described, specified in a way that they are known to be what is called intrinsically evil acts, then they are simply things that we may, even for the best of intentions, we simply cannot do.